Ah, the captured and compliant U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. It's currently discussing whether to allow nuclear reactors, which were built to be safely operated for only 40 years, an additional 20-year license extension, bringing the potential operating life not to 60 years, which they've already done, or to 80 years, which they've already done, but to 100 years, a full century, despite the known documented dangers of doing so. But then a genuine expert tells you that the danger is not in the NRC giving reactors the go-ahead for extended operating licenses, but... The NRC also allows the utilities to operate the nuclear plants. In other words, to have them run hotter and harder. Imagine being on an interstate in a car which is 60 years old or 80 years old or a century old going at high speed. Again, these nukes have been operated, but here it isn't just one car breaking down. With nuclear power plants, you're talking about absolutely huge disasters affecting millions and millions of people. It is patently insane. Well, when veteran environmental investigative reporter Carl Grossman lays out exactly what it would mean to allow a nuclear reactor to reoperate at high, hot speed for 100 years, not that we know that that's even possible, you start to realize that the temperature is going to keep going up and up and up for that deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, one of my favorite interviewees, veteran environmental journalist Carl Grossman. He explains the dangers of allowing nuclear reactors to run beyond their design basis of 40 years and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's recent hearings on allowing them a 100-year operating license. Carl knows where the nuclear bodies are buried and brings his wealth of information and understanding to the problems caused by aging reactor embrittlement and what the real risks are if the NRC and its buddies in the nuclear industry get their way. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than will be ever mentioned during this week's impeachment hearings. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 9, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off in the United States, where the push to make New Mexico the de facto nuclear sacrifice zone for the country is moving forward apace, but not without significant pushback by local communities. 
One of the steps to store our highly radioactive waste in New Mexico comes with a plan to dispose of surplus plutonium at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant near Albuquerque. The linguistic manipulation around this calls for a dilution process that would reduce the waste to radiation levels allowable at the facility. First of all, allowable is an arbitrary number that has been put together by the nuclear industry with their cronies at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Doesn't mean it's safe, it just means they let it happen. And the concept of dilution, dilution, of radioactive waste is a false one. Dilution is what happens when you take something that is a poison and you keep adding other things to it so it becomes less and less and less potent to the point where it doesn't harm you at all. But the smallest exposure to anything radioactive that is dangerous is one atom. And you cannot dilute one atom. What they would really be doing is dispersion meaning spreading the radioactive atoms over a larger area mixed with a larger amount of other materials. Note that the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, or WIP, is only licensed to accept low-level transuranic waste, such as radiated materials used during nuclear research and other activities, such as clothing and equipment, not highly radioactive plutonium. What's specifically under discussion is 34 metric tons of highly radioactive waste now stored at the Pantex plant in northern Texas and Savannah Riverside in South Carolina, all of which would have to be shipped over land and over rail through communities just to get to WIP. There is strong pushback against this coming from members of the local communities, state government in New Mexico, and groups such as the Indigenous-led Nuclear Waste Study Group, based in Albuquerque, and national environmental and anti-nuclear groups. In Washington State, workers at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation have begun retrieving radioactive waste from another of the nuclear reservation's 149 leak-prone underground waste tanks. To date, The Department of Energy has only completed waste retrieval from 17 of its 149 single-shell tanks, some of them built in the 1940s, and at least one of the 132 tanks yet to be emptied is leaking waste into the ground below. This marks the first time that DOE contractor Washington River Protection Solutions has started emptying waste from a tank since August of 2019. In Maryland, Elevated radiation levels were detected in the containment building of the Research Neutron Reactor at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Gaithersburg, which is only 19 miles from Washington, D.C. Several trained radiation workers were exposed to elevated levels and were undergoing, quote, standard decontamination and evaluation. The government is saying that there is no evidence of radiation above regulatory limits outside the containment buildings, but some nearby residents hadn't received an official notification of the radiation exposure and expressed concern. In Ohio, the new owners of two of that state's nuclear power plants have given indications that they are no longer interested in receiving as much as $1 billion in subsidies that were handed out in a tainted energy bill. The legislation, known as House Bill 6, 
resulted in a $60 million bribery case involving ex-Ohio State Speaker Larry Householder, who was alleged to help prop up the legislation to provide these subsidies. Now, a new bill, Senate Bill 44, is legislation that would eradicate these subsidies that would have been paid by electric customers across the states for the plants which are now held privately by a company called Energy Harbor. Ohio Consumers Council's Bruce Weston said in a statement, It's quite a turnaround if Energy Harbor is now telling the legislature to repeal its billion-dollar corporate welfare subsidy from Ohioans. Questions that come to mind include, Did the two nuclear plants really need the subsidy that they got from Ohioan state government? And were the nuclear plants really going to be closed without the subsidy? And former Public Utilities Commission of Ohio Chair Todd Schnitzler called HB6 a, quote, shameful piece of legislation. Ohioans don't need to pay more only to support struggling nuclear plants. A new poll undertaken by the Federation of American Scientists think tank, together with Rethink Media, shows that the majority of voters do not want billions spent on new ICBM missiles to overhaul America's nuclear sponge. That's what they're calling it. The U.S. Air Force continues to move ahead with plans to replace its LGM-30G Minutemen III intercontinental ballistic missiles with the future ground-based strategic deterrent, or GBSD, at a total cost of around $264 billion. Think how many solar panels that would pay for. The survey found that 64% of the people polled, 800 registered U.S. voters were the pool, supported delaying the GBSD, and 60% supported one of any various alternative policies to deploying the future GBSDs. And two links to articles that will fill in this picture. The first is a mammoth one. It could practically be an ebook on its own from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, thebulletin.org, entitled, Why is America getting a new $100 billion nuclear weapon? Describing it as a nuclear missile the length of a bowling alley, capable of traveling some 6,000 miles, carrying a warhead more than 20 times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima that will be able to kill hundreds of thousands of people in a single shot. And the U.S. Air Force plans to order more than 600 of them. Well, if we want to turn the planet into an asteroid belt, that's a dandy way to do so. But the bulletin is much more articulate than that, and you can find the link up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 503. And if you haven't subscribed to thebulletin.org, you could really do yourself a favor and do so because their articles are great, and I use them for source all the time. The other link is to an article from TheHill.com entitled, The U.S. Should Negotiate a Ban on Basing Weapons in Space. Here, here. We've had Bruce Gagnon of SpaceForPeace.org, as well as today's guest Carl Grossman on the show discussing this issue at length. And you will find links up on the website, episode 503. Over to Japan for this week's Nuclear Hot Seat. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's a week. If you still need evidence of what a cluster the Olympics are and the thinking that is behind it, 
Look no further than this week's remarks by Tokyo Olympics chief Yoshiro Mori. The 83-year-old former prime minister has already continued to ignore the radiation hotspots along the Olympic torch relay, ignore radiation problems and readings at the first women's softball and baseball games set for Fukushima's Azuma Baseball Stadium, ignore the rising costs and ever-growing public opposition to the games to say nothing of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, and declare that the 2020 Olympics will take place in 2021, even with the wrong date on all the pre-printed merch. In addition to all that, this week, Maury further stuck his foot in it and insulted women everywhere by suggesting that women talk too much in meetings. His comments demeaning women took place during an online executive meeting of the Japanese Olympic Committee. No closed doors to hide behind here. The whole world was listening. When asked to comment on the Olympic Committee's plan to increase the number of women board members to more than 40% of the total, big whoop, it still assumes men deserve the majority position, Maury said, You have to regulate speaking time to some extent, or else we'll never be able to finish. And other statements implying that women talk too much. Comments that were met with laughter. They may not be laughing now, as international complaints against his comments have been building, and it's now reported that at this moment, 390 volunteers for the Olympics and the Paralympics have resigned, including two torchbearers. Well, if awareness of radiation hotspots and the propaganda that has been building against evacuees from Fukushima isn't enough to cancel the radioactive Olympics, Perhaps antediluvian, backwards-thinking, blatant sexism is. And that's why 83-year-old, has anyone checked him for Alzheimer's lately, Olympics chief Yoshiro Mori? You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Over to the UK, where their Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, or NDA, has relaunched its search for a site for a geological depository facility for nuclear waste. And one option that is actually being considered is to build it under the Irish Sea, up to 22 kilometers or 13 and a half miles from Sellafield, and within seven miles of the Isle of Man territorial waters. Peter Christian of the Isle of Man Friends of the Earth said, the proposal to transport nuclear waste to a location underneath the Irish Sea is not supportable. The history of storage of such highly dangerous substances is littered with incidents of contamination, inadequate containers and sealant, erosion, cracking, human error, and they have been found to pose significant risks. The nuclear waste industry itself has flagged up potential problems of ventilation and, if necessary, retrieval of hazardous substances. We should no longer consider the marine environment as infinitely capable of soaking up our human wastes, as has been done so often with explosive and toxic munitions and whatever else has been dumped at sea. The preferred option of the NDA is close to or actually under Isle of Man territorial waters, something which the government should also oppose. As the first ever treaty to ban nuclear weapons has entered into force, India said that it does not support the treaty and shall not be bound by any of the obligations that may arise from it. 
The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was approved by the United Nations General Assembly in 2017 and entered into international force of law on January 21st of this year. At the same time, India has reiterated its commitment to the goal of a nuclear weapons-free world. Yeah, how about participating in it? Meanwhile, word comes that Cuba has become the latest nation to ratify the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. On January 29th, EU Today hosted a conference at the Press Club in Brussels concentrating on the new and proposed nuclear power plants in Belarus, Turkey, and Uzbekistan. Moderator Natalia Richardson drew parallels between the risks surrounding nuclear energy today and the Chernobyl disaster of 1986, of which she, as a student in Ukraine at the time, had experience. Keynote speaker Jutta Paulsom, a German Green member of parliament who sits on the European Parliament's Committee on the Environment, Public Health, and Food Safety, told the conference that at present, Nuclear energy may supply around 10% of the global demand for electricity, but to maintain this level, taking into account rising demand and the decommissioning of existing aging out reactors, new builds will need to come online at a rate of 50-50 per year, which is impossible. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, nuclear problems are going to continue to be with us forever. From uranium mining, to weapons production, to radiation-leaking reactors, to still not having a way to safely store the deadly radioactive waste produced by all these endeavors, nuclear is government and business, not caring how they contaminate the world, as long as they keep making obscene profits and fool themselves into thinking they are immune to the consequences of their actions, even though they are not. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination that will not go away on its own, ever. Quite frankly, nuclear is a mess. That's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. You've learned to count on us to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as skepticism, with a much deeper and nuanced telling than you would ever expect in mainstream media. We get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, whenever possible, with humor. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. It's the only way we are able to keep going. You can do so easily by just going to NuclearHotSeat.com. There's a big red Donate button there. If you click on it, follow the prompts, you can help us with a donation of any size. That same red button is now where you can set up a monthly $5, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. So please, do what you can, and do it now. And know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you are listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. And it's with one of my favorite interviewees. Carl Grossman is an author and journalism professor at the State University of New York College of Old Westbury. He hosts the television program Enviro Close-Up with Carl Grossman, is the author of six books, and writer of numerous magazine, newspaper, and internet articles. Carl has been covering nuclear issues for over 50 years. And in terms of knowing how things came about and where the bodies are buried, that's a metaphor, we hope. Nobody does it better. 
Carl has been an important early and consistent supporter of Nuclear Hot Seat, and we talked with him about the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's latest deadly shenanigans and hijinks, or as Carl calls it, baloney, as regards nuclear reactor operations. We talked on February 5, 2021. Carl Grossman, it is always a joy to have you with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. A pleasure always to be with you, Libby. Let's talk about nuclear reactors. When they were first built, their operating life expectancy was 40 years, after which time the engineers said they would have to be decommissioned. Why was that? Well, it had to do with embrittlement. When radiation hits metal, the metal becomes extremely embrittled. And as a result, back when nuclear power began, the thinking was, and it was correct thinking, that after 40 years, these plants would be unsafe to operate because of embrittlement of metals. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission has repeatedly provided 20-year extensions on the operating licenses of U.S. nuclear reactors, first to 60 years, now in certain instances to 80 years, and they are actually in the middle of discussing being able to provide an additional 20 years to 100 years of operation. What's wrong with this picture? Well, it's utterly nuts. It's crazy. And here, in fact, I'm quoting Bob Alvarez, a former senior policy advisor at the U.S. Department of Energy. In a piece I wrote, it appeared on Counterpunch and Nation of Change. He's also the co-author of Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Radiation. No reactor in history has lasted that long. In fact, the oldest nuclear power plant in the United States, it went for 49 years. It was the Oyster Creek plant in New Jersey, and it was closed in 2018. So here, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which, well, it's acronymed NRC, but that should stand for Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, has said yes through the decades to whatever the nuclear industry wants. Just important to understand, the nuclear industry is uh, is sinking. The nuclear power is in its doldrums. I mean, the only nuclear power plants being constructed in the United States are the Vogel three and four nukes in Georgia. And the cost, and it's way over the original cost estimate. Now it's $28 billion for these two plants and the price is still rising beyond the Three Mile Island disaster, beyond the, the Chernobyl catastrophe, beyond the Fukushima disaster. And meanwhile, there's, there's safe, clean, green, renewable energy led by solar and wind Nuclear is not necessary, and people do not want nuclear power. That's why there's only two nukes being built in the United States. And the number of nuclear plants in the U.S. is now down from 129 to 94. So the nuclear industry is just uh, desperate to stay alive. So it figures what it could do is, instead of keeping with this uh, 40-year limit in terms of the operating licenses for nuclear power plants, they're what's considered their operating life, to extend that to 60 years, and that's already been done. And most nuclear power plants in the U.S. now, because of the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, have been given the okay to go 60 years. 
And then the NRC has given a number of plans, the go-ahead to go for 80. And now it's talking about 100. As Bob Alvarez, who is an expert, as he says, it's crazy. This could be national suicide. And that's not hyperbole. I mean, and you'd have another disaster like Fukushima in this country. One other thing I should mention, in giving the go-ahead for these extending operating licenses, the NRC also allows the utilities to operate the nuclear plants. In other words, to have them run hotter and harder. Imagine being on an interstate in a car, which is 60 years old or 80 years old or a century old, going at high speed. Again, these nukes have been operated. There's going to be a problem. There's going to be a breakdown. But here, it isn't just one car breaking down. With nuclear power plants, you're talking about absolutely huge disasters affecting millions and millions of people. It is patently insane to allow nuclear power plants. I don't think they should run for a week. I don't think they should run for a day. But to run for a period of 60, 80, 100 years is absolutely asking for catastrophe. Talk to us about embrittlement, what it is and what it does and why it is so dangerous and why it gets worse the longer a nuclear reactor runs. I just wrote a big article with Harvey Wasserman. He was one of the folks that got together and coined that term no nukes years ago. He also was a co-author of the book, Killing Our Own, The Disaster of America's Experience with Atomic Radiation. And he, he did an interview with Arnie Gunderson. And Arnie, who you know, was a nuclear engineer for, for decades, uh, still is, but he's an independent nuclear engineer now. And as he explained the situation, and it's in the article which I wrote with Harvey, which is in Nation of Change, Counterpunch, other outlets, as he explains it, when radiation hits metal, it wreaks havoc with the metal. And as a result, you can't depend on that steel. You can't depend on that metal, including the metal around what the core, the nuclear core is in a nuclear power plant. The deal is with a problem with loss of coolant affecting a nuclear power plant, a meltdown accident, the remedy is to use what's called the emergency core cooling system. It's a series of, of showers which would shower down cold, the metal of the core containment of a nuclear power plant. That, that cold water hitting hot and brittle metal, the game's over, as Arnie Gunderson put it. Think of what happened at uh, Fukushima. Think of what happened at Chernobyl. A, an explosion can, can easily occur. Uh, a plume of radioactive poisons can be formed. Containments, incidentally, in nuclear power plants, to go back to allowing these old, decrepit nuclear power plants in the U.S., and not to, incidentally, the average age of nuclear power plants in the U.S., all 94 of them now, is 40 years. 40 years. And as I cite in, in, in the articles Harvey and I wrote, I cite a U.S. government document which says that in 2019, they were 39 years old, the average nuclear power plant in the United States. 
Now it's 2021. So they're all, at this, this point, the average age for all the nuclear plants, all 94 of them in the US is, is 40. They're now beyond, now beyond that limit set when nuclear power began. The part of the quote from Arnie Gunderson in the article you wrote with Harvey Wasserman, and we will link to it up on the website with this interview. The quote that really got me was where he said that if embrittlement happens and there is an accident, that the container vessel would shatter like glass. And that put it more powerfully than I've heard it before. Now, to buck itself up, the nuclear industry has put a lot of money into its PR and propaganda to convince the world that it is a quote unquote, hurts me to even say this, clean green technology and is, and I choke on these words, carbon free. Your response to those claims? Well, it's just the latest installment of nuclear baloney from these nuclear Pinocchios. I remember years ago, the notion was Louis Strauss, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, proclaimed that nuclear power would be electricity too cheap to meter. Now, the, the newest pitch is that nuclear power is carbon free. What the nuclear industry doesn't want to say, doesn't want to talk about. In fact, it's carbon intensive. When you talk about the nuclear fuel cycle, a mining, milling, enrichment, in fact, nuclear power plants themselves emit carbon-14, a radioactive form of carbon. It's just another big lie by the nuclear industry. So what do we say to people who claim that genuinely sustainable energy technologies like solar, wind, geothermal, hydroelectric, tidal, and anything else that's been created, all of that would never be able to generate power enough to replace nuclear? It's untrue, and not only will the Union of Concerned Scientists published a book actually exactly 30 years ago called Renewables Are Ready. At this point, renewables are more than ready, and renewables could at, at this point easily, easily replace coal, replace oil, replace gas, and replace nuclear. Renewable, safe, green, clean energy solar and wind lead it, but there's tidal and there's wave power and there's other forms of safe, green, renewable energy. This is energy we can live with, not energy that we'd end up dying with. There's a new administration in charge in Washington, D.C. What is within the power of President Biden to do to get the problems at the NRC and with these aging nuclear reactors under control and prevent what you have recently referred to in the article as nuclear suicide. What Harvey and I say in that piece is that Biden should order inspections regard to embrittlement of every nuclear power plant in the United States. And if there's embrittlement, shut them down. Absolutely shut them down. Biden's not perfect. Biden's not perfect. And even though years and years ago as a senator, he was very concerned about the Salem nuclear power plant, which was across where we lived in Delaware, which has been problem plagued for years. He's been sold a bill of goods, quite unfortunately, by the nuclear industry and its proponents, its proponents in government. And he's for advanced 
nuclear power. In other words, new and improved nukes. Well, they're not, well, these are just old ideas being wheeled out again. They're not certainly improved. And secondarily, he's, he's bought BS that to deal with climate change, to deal with global warming, we must go to nuclear. I mean, it's, it's, it's like going from crack cocaine to heroin or vice versa. The wise thing that President Biden should do, in my view, is to, I mean, he's talked about sending this country into a needed transition to renewables, but that should be full-throated. I mean, again, the renewables, they're more than ready. Nuclear power plants take years, decades or more to construct. Solar, wind, the, these other safe, clean, green energy forms could be put into operation very, very quickly. What Biden, I think, should do, I mean, he should certainly have these nukes looked into in regard to embrittlement, but I think he should shut them all down immediately. Shut them all down and have this country move to 100% renewable. As to the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, it grows out of what I mentioned, Louis Strauss and the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. Finally, in 1974, it was abolished by the U.S. Congress, many members then and now in the pocket of the nuclear industry for being in conflict of interest, for uh, somehow regulating and promoting at the same time nuclear technology. So what occurred was that a nuclear so-called regulatory commission was created to kind of be an objective entity to look into nuclear. It, it's not been an objective. It's, it's, uh, it's been a promotional entity from its outset. And then eventually the U.S. Department of Energy was created and it. it was to have the promotional role to, to, uh, to push nuclear power, which it's, it's done to a fairly well. But just in, in recent days, and, and this is so disturbing, President Biden appointed Christopher Hansen as the new chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Guess where Christopher Hansen comes from? The Department of Energy's Office of Nuclear Energy. For years, he pushed <laughs> at DOE nukes, and now he's going to push nukes at the NRC. I mean, uh, this is the way it's been from the outset. For a variety of reasons, the nuclear industry has had a hold on the U.S. government. And furthermore, and we've discussed this before on your program, Libby, the Manhattan Project, it gave birth to a vested interest. I mean, this was the crash program to build nuclear weapons, atomic bombs during World War II. And with the war being over, the folks in the Manhattan Project, the engineers and the scientists, they worked on building more nuclear bombs, bigger and better nuclear bombs. Better. Not yeah, right in quotes. <laughs> the, Edward Tellers, he was the father of, of the, the bigger one, the hydrogen bomb. But then they, they worried, well, what else? How many nuclear weapons can we build? You can't even sell a nuclear weapon to an ally. What can we do with nuclear power to somehow perpetuate the vested interests that were developed during the Manhattan Project? So they thought about oh, and actually built an airplane which to, was to be powered by a nuclear reactor. Problem was, how are you going to shield the pilots from the radioactivity? You could put in a lot of lead, but the plane would be too heavy. 
nuclear powered rockets, which I've, I've done a lot of work on. I mean, that's not over at all. Plans to use nukes in space, radiation, zapping strawberries and potatoes so you could eat them in 20 years if you wanted to eat a 20 year old strawberry. And finally, nuclear power plants in part, I mean, this is the original scheme to produce plutonium for weapons. The Nagasaki bomb was a plutonium atomic bomb. Uh, most of our atomic bombs since plutonium based, it's a man-made element. The hydrogen bomb, its trigger is plutonium. And secondarily, I mean, this is the original scheme, dual purpose reactors, they call them, was to produce electricity. GE and Westinghouse initially were major contractors in the Manhattan Project program. And then subsequently, GE and Westinghouse became the Coke and Pepsi of nuclear power plants. 80% of nuclear power plants worldwide are of GE or Westinghouse design or manufacture. And so out of the Manhattan Project comes, frankly, a nuclear cult within government pushing nuclear at the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission, and now at the U.S. Department of Energy, and then uh, their PR, in fact, my first book on nuclear power, Cover Up, What You're Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power, starts off with my saying, uh, you have not been told, you've not been informed because of an army of PR people, public relations people from the outset, pushing from the outset to suppress, as we call the book Cover Up, information about nuclear technology and, and to sell it. Now, the current pitch, as I say, is that we need it because of climate change. No, no we need safe, green, clean energy forms, not nuclear. So uh, we've had a problem for many years, and the struggle continues. Speaking of that struggle, I know that listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat, a lot of them are very motivated to be involved, get involved, stay involved in these issues whenever they can. What might we do to support the president or to create more noise around what the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is doing so that perhaps we can get them to knock it off? I'm a firm believer in grassroots action bottom-up action, people working from the grassroots. And there's some excellent organizations around. I'm on the board, in fact, of Beyond Nuclear, a superb group based in Tacoma Park in Maryland, near Washington, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, a superb group, excellent group, also based uh, in Tacoma Park, Greenpeace, a wonderful group in terms of fighting, challenging nuclear power. The Radiation and Public Health Project is a very fine group based in New Jersey. In fact, I'm on its board too. And that focuses in on, you don't need a catastrophe for people to end up dying because of nuclear power, dying largely because of cancer. Nuclear power plants are allowed, permissible emissions, they call it, to send out radioactivity in the form of gas in terms of the coolant water when it comes out of the nuclear power plant and so forth. And as a result, there's cancer clusters around every nuclear power plant. And the nuclear industry doesn't want to talk about this, but the Radiation and Public Health Project with Joe Mangano as the executive director uh, has long done the epidemiology. I think people should connect with these organizations. A lot of the big environmental organizations I'm sorry to say uh, 
aren't with it on nucleus. Some are, some aren't. But the organizations that I just named, those four are fine. And Greece, Greenpeace isn't a small little organization itself. And somehow try to educate, try to educate President Biden. Kamala Harris, incidentally, has been critical of nuclear. And maybe she could get the president's ear. However, uh, in the Democratic platform, there's a, a, a commitment to nuclear power. I mean, folks out there who are Democrats have to, I think, have this ship of Democratic state change course. And as people become aware, even people in government who sometimes are hard to convince and hard to get to, the ship of Democratic state, the ship of state period can be changed. Now, there's also a number of Congress people who are superb on this issue. One being Edward Markey of Massachusetts, the senator from Massachusetts, working with Edward Markey, anybody listening to the shows from Massachusetts, supporting Ed Markey, working with Ed Markey, very important. But in my view, nuclear power, this, this is a matter of life and death. We don't want to end up like the people in Japan around Fukushima. So many dead with cancer. They've had to leave their homes. The people who lived around, I mean, the greatest research work on the Chernobyl disaster was done by a team of European scientists led by uh, Dr. Alexei Yablokov, the Emmys, the Rachel Carson of Russia. That book concluded, it, it was published by the New York Academy of Sciences a few years ago, that the death toll, the death toll as a result of the Chernobyl disaster in 1989 was near a million, near a million from the fallout. And it wasn't just in Belarus and Russia and the Ukraine, but that radioactive plume spread around the world. It was fallout. And wherever there was an impact, and they look at the impact in terms of where there was heavy fallout, cancer rate spiking, and so forth. So, I mean, this is a life and death situation. And in brittle nuclear power plants in the United States being allowed now to operate 60 and 80, 100 years, 100 years, as I say, it's just absolutely asking for disaster. As to that, Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission. It had a public held a public meeting a few weeks ago, and well, the public meeting was on the here's the here's the title of the document that folks were supposed to comment on: development of guidance documents to support. Hear that word support? License renewal for a hundred years of plant operations and. As Paul Gunter, director of the Reactor Oversight Project of Beyond Nuclear, said, our position is a resounding no. Or Erica Gray, she's the nuclear issues chair of the Virginia Sierra Club. It's time to stop this whole new con job, said Erica Gray. There's no solution to dealing with radioactive waste, and it's unethical to continue to make the most toxic waste known to mankind, renewable energy led by solar and wind can power the whole world. Which is, of course, what we should be aiming at. So given that 
in your long history of publishing terrific articles on the truth about nuclear, this most recent one about embrittlement that you and Harvey Wasserman wrote together for Counterpunch and all the other places where it has shown up, what has been the response, if any, that you've received so far to the article and the information that was in it? We've gotten very strong, great compliments, strong support. Then I, I've also gotten emails, and I'm open to emails, from folks said, but we need nuclear. I mean, there may be problems, but because of climate change, and I, I respond just like I just responded a few minutes ago with the information about how nuclear is not carbon free. Some write to have written to me, in fact, an engineer from your way, from, from California said, yeah, but these advanced reactors, uh, you know, uh, the thorium reactor. And then I have to spend 20 minutes writing about how these new improved nukes are not new, they're not improved, they're not advanced, they produce nuclear waste, they're prone to accidents too, and so forth and so on. But in general, when people are informed, and I've been on the lecture circuit for years on the nuclear issue. In fact, we're talking many years ago, and I really had to sharpen my presentation. My lecture agency had me debate John Sununu. John Sununu was the White House chief of staff for the first Bush. And we had a series of debates. In the beginning, interestingly enough, Sununu insisted in the contract because he knew my book cover-up and how I wrote the book was to reprint as facsimiles all these kinds of documents in regard to nuclear technology from the government, from, from corporations. And the deal was no slides, no books, no PowerPoint. We're going to debate. And then he had the husband of I'm a nuclear engineer, said Sununu, whose father incidentally worked for Westinghouse. So there's a, a lineage there. What do you, you're a journalist. And I said, what I try to do is to dredge up the facts, to get to the facts. And a second debate, I had insisted to the lecturer, I got to be able to show the slides. I got to be able to show documentation. And I did. And I did successively with Sununu which uh, disappointed uh, John Sununu. But I have found when people get the information, I mean, after the presentations I've given and all over, my lecture agency has booked me to technological schools, Ohio Institute of Technology, Louisiana, I think it's called Technology Institute and so forth. And when I happen to inform the young people in the audience who are thinking of going into the new industry about how they are allowed to absorb many times more the radioactivity than the average person. What? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get into this? I'm going to walk into the nuclear lion's den? Even those folks who have been, well, they've been brainwashed, frankly. They've been conditioned by people in the nuclear cult to, to think that it's all fine and dandy. It's nuclear power, the best thing to come along. Please chase and slice bread. It is not. It's poisoned bread. As John Goffman, who was one of the rare kind of people who, he was associate director at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory. He was involved with the Manhattan Project. But he finally understood, he finally understood how lethal this war was. And he became, speaking of uh, being a whistleblower, uh, coming out. And his great book is Poisoned Power. Or another great example, I think, is Hyman Rickover. I mean, Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear navy, he was, in fact, in charge of the first nuclear power plant built in the U.S. in shipping port in Pennsylvania. He, he retired from the Navy in 1982. You can see his speech on Google. 
in the newer editions of Cover Up, I reprint two pages. Essentially what he says, what he says is billions of years ago, there couldn't be any life on earth because of this naturally occurring radioactivity. Nothing could exist, but when those radioactive poisons went through their half-lives, went through their, their hazardous lifetimes, then life could begin. And then he goes on, by having these nuclear power plants, by, by having these reactors, we are recreating the very poisons that precluded life. And, and this is Rickover, not Greenpeace, not beyond nuclear or nears or radiation in public. Rickover then goes on, there I think the human race is going to wreck itself. That's Hyman Rickover with a warning to a congressional committee as he retired in 1982. I remember during the first Clinton campaign, the notion is the economy stupid. Here with nuclear technology, nuclear power, it's the radioactivity, stupid. It's radioactivity. It kills life. It destroys life. And the thing is, there's no need for man-made radioactivity. I mean, it's, we live with a, still a little bit of radioactivity that comes from the natural environment and so forth, and some people die from it. But to have nuclear power plants fissioning uranium, breeders with plutonium, these deadly machines, which in an accident will discharge vast amounts of radioactive poison and kill large numbers of, again, the Chernobyl, a million people dead. And even just in routine operations, being allowed to and have to emit radioactive gases, water that has become irradiated. I mean, they all should be shut down. And I have found from being involved in this issue for many decades, when people get to know, when people become aware, talking about game over, the game is over. You have certainly been a source of clear, compelling, well thought out, brilliantly well put together writing and presentations on nuclear issues for decades now. You've certainly been a mentor and an educator for me when I first barged into this field after Fukushima. And I always appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you because I know that the information will be complex, well thought out, well presented, and mind-blowing at the same time, even for those of us who are familiar with it. So, Carol Grossman, just thank you for being you, for doing what you do, and of course, as always, for being my guest again this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Anytime, Libby. It's a pleasure to be with you. That was veteran environmental journalist, author, and professor Carl Grossman. We'll have plenty of links up in connection with this interview to Carl's recent article on embrittlement, which he co-authored with Harvey Wasserman, to a video of Arnie Gunderson from 2014, where he graphically explains what embrittlement is and what it does, to the cornerstone book by Alexei Yablokov, Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, and to Carl's terrific book, Cover-Up which you are not supposed to know about nuclear. The links are to Amazon because they make it easy for me to track down the books, but I encourage you to order them through a local independent bookstore. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. This is a great heads up from Mary Olson of genderandradiation.org. Within the past year or so, 
the NRC has placed thousands of old records into Adams, its digital online library. These documents were previously only accessible by visiting the NRC's public documents room or one of its local public documents rooms and doing the work in person. Among the records now available in digital form are lots of records on the March 1979 accident at Three Mile Island. We will have a link up to Mary's trail of breadcrumbs through the very convoluted, hey, it's coming from the government, very convoluted instructions for actually looking up a specific PDF. Know that in the document content search box, you can replace the word radiological, which is what she had previously suggested, with other items of interest, and then click on the dark blue search button. That way, you'll get lots of information, all of it the official NRC documents. The Republic of Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission is holding their annual Nuclear Victims Remembrance Day on March 1, 2021. The day is chosen because it commemorates the March 1, 1954 Castle Bravo nuclear test, the largest nuclear test ever committed by the United States of America. The theme for this year's event is We Are Not Alone, and they are asking other frontline nuclear justice groups to submit a video message of 15 seconds, if they could, to stand in solidarity with the Marshall Islands people and this year's theme, We Are Not Alone. That's another one of the links we will have up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 503. Another one of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 Claire Grady will be starting her prison sentence of one year and one day on Wednesday, February 10. Grady, along with six others, broke into the world's largest nuclear submarine base at Kings Bay, Georgia, on April 4 of 2018. They strung crime tape across the entrance, poured vials of their own blood on the ground, and stood in front of the entrance holding a banner saying, The Ultimate Logic of Trident, Omnicide. Members of Plowshares believe that nuclear weapons are created in a system that is also causing climate change, institutional racism, and the detainment of immigrants. All seven of the protesters are facing or have been convicted of conspiracy, destruction of property on a naval installation, deprivation of government property, and trespassing, and ordered to each pay a share of what the government says is the $33,503.51 that the Navy said it cost to clean and repair the damage caused by the Plowshares 7. Grady has stated that she believes that spending a year and a day in federal prison will be a learning experience. Quote, This prison time is just another stage of the action, and going to Kings Bay for me is like going to the head of the beast and say, yes, we will find ourselves in the belly of the beast. Our hearts and best wishes go with her. And on this sad note, we mark the passing of Jay Truman, a downwinder who was a fierce advocate for cancer victims of atomic testing. Truman famously said, You learn quickly that the first victim of nuclear weapons or nuclear power is the truth, and the first casualty is the government's ability to tell the truth. Journalist, playwright, And fellow downwinder Mary Dixon said, He was a downwinder who fought like hell for justice, who is determined, indefatigable, and fierce in his lifelong work on behalf of those who suffered from 928 nuclear blasts in Nevada that spread fallout across the country. Jay Truman, 
was 69 years old. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 9, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, San Clemente Green, heraldscotland.com, fairwinds.org, washingtontimes.com, wtap.com, currentargus.com, searchlightnm.org, tri-cityherald.com, thedrive.com, thehill.com, thebulletin.org, newyorktimes.com, iomtoday.co.im, royalsocietypublishing.org, ndtv.com, and the ever-co-opted, regulatory-captured nuclear rubber stamp, uh, uh, nuclear regulatory commission. (laughs) Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world, in 123 countries on six continents and counting. Now, if you want to make certain that you get Nuclear Hot Seat every week, there's an easy way to do so. Just go to our website, nuclearhotseat.com, look for the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name, put in your email address, and we will send you one email a week. It contains the link to the show and a short rundown on what's in it, as well as a tweet-length post that you can copy and paste and put into social media to help get the show out to others. We really do rely on grassroots activism. And this is one simple step that you can take every week to help us get the word out. Now, there is another way that you can participate that's really easy and just a couple of clicks away. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send it to us by email, info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, just take a moment Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for that big red button, click on it, follow the prompts. Anything you can do to help will help, and we always appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, fair use allowed, as long as information is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we can always come up with the date that a nuclear emergency begins, but we can never come up with a date that it's over, because once it starts, it's never over. There you go. That has been your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.